Blog Talk Radio. Black free thinkers, where we walk by sight with a bright flashlight to illuminate night. Free thought, we don't walk by space in a lost mind state, cause it's not quite safe. We don't recruit, we're not peers from a church, so don't be spooked, we're not here to convert. The only truth that's not pulled from a text, show me proof that's not good after death. This is the challenge to think for yourself, break it out of the bottle and speak what you felt. 310982 4273 to get through A venue for community and this is the zone If you'd like to speak with Kim then pick up the phone 310-982-4273 to get through The next tree branch is Rainer and it's best you listen to Reason, science, and skepticism It's loaded with straight facts, inspiring and dope She can make Bill Nye retire with lab coat Humans are hilarious and every other Friday I'd like to hear commentary on culture people So I hit up Super Mario and bring in Emmeline To discuss why we're capable of ultra evil It's normal for my brain to have a two-way street But if there's collisions, well then you got to just mention it and don't be afraid of where the truth may lead Ignoring your position of cognitive dissonance When Father Teresa preaches, it's hard to stop So Kim paired me up with Alfred in the barbershop I have a sin family in all these places now As the free thought tree pollinates around here This is the challenge to think for yourself Break it out of the bottle and speak what you felt 310-982-4273 to get through A venue for community and this is the zone If you'd like to speak with Kim then pick up the phone 310-982-4273 to get through Where we walk by sight with a bright flashlight to illuminate night We don't walk by faith in a lost mind state cause it's not quite safe Hello and good evening. You are listening to Black Free Thinkers Radio. You are tuned in to On Blast with Vita Star. I'm your host, Vita Star. And today we are going to be discussing the education to incarceration. What is the school to prison pipeline? It is a term used to describe the way in which youth students, in particular, are pushed out of school and into the criminal justice system. A pipeline is a result of public institutions neglecting to properly address students as individuals who might need extra educational or social assistance or being unable to do so because of staffing shortages or statutory mandates. This, the resulting miseducation and mass incarceration are said to create a vicious circle for individuals and communities. How is this happening? Why is it happening? Is it real? And what can be done about it? But first, before we even get into that, we have some recent news topics fresh off the presses that we want you to weigh in on. So feel free to call in tonight and join the discussion. Right now, we have some guest panelists on the line, and I'm very happy with today's guests, um, with my panelists today. I, I, I asked them specifically to join in um, because I think they're very intelligent, very intellectual, and they're very articulate when it comes to pretty much anything. <laughs> Maybe I'm gassing up a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> but I do love them, and I love I love everything that they say and the things and the way they respond to various topics. But first, so we have writer, Black Freethinkers Radio host, or fellow Black Freethinkers Radio host, and who's actually my co-host last time, and she's the co-owner of Goddess Beauty All Natural Hair and Body Products. You can check out her products at Where Are Goddess, 
wearegoddess.etsy.com. Her name is Emily Mousseau. Hi, Emily. Hi, Rita. Hi, everyone. Um, it's so good to be back on the show. I loved co-hosting with you last time, and it is so great to be on the panel tonight. I think this is such an important topic that definitely needs to be discussed. The discussion is long overdue. I agree, and I'm excited that you're on the panel too. Don't, but next time you, you're hosting again, so don't get comfortable. <laughs> okay, deal. <laughs> Next, we have former social activist and creator and admin of the Facebook group Mind Wide Open, Muhammad Kareem. How are you today? Hi, Vita. I'm I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm glad to be on the to, to be a guest on the show. Thank you, and thank you for joining. I know I kind of asked, I think, yesterday, so I appreciate you uh, going ahead and saying yes to that. And last but certainly not least, our guest panelist, our last guest panelist is a community activist and musical producer. His name is Doxen. Doxen? Vita, how you doing? Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on the show, sis. I'm glad that you are, uh, again, just like Muhammad came in, let me <laughs> ask you at the last minute to come on, and you were definitely down to do it, and I appreciate that. No problem at all. No problem at all. appreciate you having me. So, like I said, we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. We always have the our news topics first, and you guys are all welcome to call in and participate in that discussion. You can also join our chat room. Um, our chat room is open. I believe I opened it up. I'll try again. <laughs> Sometimes I think I've, did, I've opened it and I haven't. But, um, yeah, so you guys are welcome to call in, join the chat, participate in the discussion at any point in this uh, show. So... I definitely want to uh, lay out some ground rules before we even start the discussion. And the reason I'm doing this, and and I'm going to repeat them again later on in the show, because I I just want to make sure that everyone has a chance to participate. So I'm just going to ask that everyone please keep their comments to the point and as succinct as possible. And I'm not timing anybody, but we want to make sure that everyone has a chance to participate and that everyone feels comfortable participating. That's very important for this show because that's what this show is, an inclusive discussion. And we don't want people to feel too intimidated to participate because everyone is trying to out-talk each other. So that's very important. And it's okay to disagree. It's perfectly all right to have differing opinions, and it is important that we challenge each other's ideas and perspectives. That helps us grow and learn. But... No personal attacks. I think we have done a great job of that on this show, and I'm not really too worried about it, but I just wanted to make sure I put that out there. Everybody's clear? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm glad yeah. you said something because, you know, I like to talk, so. <laughs> I think we're all and guilty they, of that. Yeah, I'm guilty of it, but that's why I do radio. <laughs> um, So I want to start with something a little bit light because I saw, I just saw this like almost pretty much right after, right before I got on the show. It was a link, and I'm going to post this link um, in the chat room. I don't know if everyone got the chance to see it, but um, basically, there is a a movie, a film about an Aboriginal, meaning you know, Aborigines from Australia, uh, about a music group, a soul music group from Australia, and they're Aborigines, and. Uh, the movie is being released on Blu-ray and DVD, and when it was released in Australia, the picture had the soul singers at, at the forefront and the one, one of the white co-stars in, towards the background. And in the U.S., the picture changed it. Uh, for one thing, they put the white actor, the co-star, at the forefront, even though the story and the stars are aboriginal. 
Aborigine, I believe that's the correct way to say that. And not only did they put them in the background, they faded their color out. So you can, you can, some of them you can kind of tell are black. The other ones you're not too sure. And so I was reading this in one of the uh, Facebook groups, and um, they, some people were saying that people were making a big deal about it. It's not really racist. Um, but there was a petition put out. Uh, against it, I think this was started by someone who's from Australia, and they were saying, no, this is pretty racist. And I'm going to go ahead and put that in the chat room, people who uh, want to click that link if they're able to do so. Okay, totally, yeah. So, uh, Mike, that's my question. Is that something that people should make a big deal about? People should just not care? Some people were saying in in the Facebook group that this is nothing and that it it doesn't necessarily make it racist just because they put the black or the um, Aboriginal characters in, in the background. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that's racism, or do you think it's just good marketing? Um, I well, I guess I'll weigh in on it. Um, now, now, keep in mind that um, I haven't ever lived in Australia, and I've never um, been able to interact person personally with an Aborigine. However, um, I really don't think it's racist, or at least not in the way that people think that it is. Um, from what I know of Australia, it is a very racist country, um, particularly toward Aborigines and Asians. And the fact mm-hmm. that they had the Aborigines in the forefront on the Australian cover says to me that um, the marketers aren't racist. They just assume that um, Americans are even more racist than Australians are, and that's why they changed the U.S. cover. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... Like kind they, of they, they probably look at what's going on in the United States and think, you know what, things are this bad here, and these people are clearly even more racist than we are. So if we want this movie to sell over there, we better change this cover. I I agree that maybe the marketing itself wasn't racist in the sense that they weren't trying to be to slight the black actors. I I believe that it definitely was marketing, but I don't think that means it's not racist. And I, I agree with what you said. You said it maybe it's racist in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I do believe it, it's racist. I mean, I'm, what I mean is that I believe that it is the the cover, the U.S. cover was specifically done with racist ideologies in mind. Not that the marketers are inherently racist, but that they assume it of the the American consumer. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. What I, I don't question. agree with was – oh, go ahead. Well, well, okay, so it was the same marketers that, um, uh, the, the same marketing people who marketed it in Australia also did the no. marketing. So it was too different. Okay, so. Yeah, there, so it, then, was, it was uh, given to a U.S. distributor, and they did the marketing. Uh, okay, okay, so, so yeah, you just pretty much verify my theory. <laughs> yeah, which is why I agreed with you. I mean, okay. it's, it's the assumption that these uh that people here in the U.S. are going to see that and, you know, somehow think it's too black or something and people aren't going to want to watch it. I guess they're going to think it's like Sparkle or something. Which is fun well, because uh, it's the Sapphires, and it's very yeah, similar to Sparkle. <laughs> I that think again? that kind of makes it racist on the part of the um, – it makes it racist on the on the part of the U.S. distributors then, I would say, right? Because they're right. the ones who made it – with uh, yeah, yeah, that that's but that's pretty standard uh, procedure for for the U.S. You know that's that's kind of 
You know, marketing, I mean, a lot of times it gets framed as marketing. You know, it gets framed as marketing, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that it's still, you know, racist. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for me, it's 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 problematic. Um, first of all, it's part for the course when you deal with uh, America and any kind of marketing, especially particularly in film. So it's pretty much part for the course. But it is problematic when you're changing uh, things to try and make it more, I guess, palatable for uh, uh, a white audience. Because I mean, I, I don't really I understand that they were done by different people, and so I can't really fault the original. Uh, people who are marketed in Australia, but it, for me it's problematic when you start changing things in order to try and appeal to a wider audience. That speaks to me directly to the racism that really kind of just permeates the entire uh, entertainment industry here in this country. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, that's very true. This this country, look at what it does with, um, a lot of times the, the excuse is, well, this is what sells, so that makes it all right. But that's, you know, that's, in a lot of ways, that's what happened to, um, that's part of what happened to hip-hop music is uh, uh, it got, a lot of the more conscious stuff got pushed out, and um, a lot of the more, nonsense stuff, a lot of the more violent and misogynistic stuff got pushed, you know, got pushed forward, and the argument was, well, that's what sells, but that's because, you know, that's what a lot of white people were buying and what they, you know, what they liked as, that's what appealed to them as what hip-hop was, you know, the more conscious stuff, even though it would sell among, you know, you could get a following, but white people weren't buying that, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, in marketing, in a lot of ways, it is just um, uh, it, it is inherently racist. Um, you know, when you're marketing to a country that has that racism is such a um, integral part of what this country is. And it's really, it's really, uh, it's really pronounced. I would say in the film industry, I have a friend of mine. His uh, name is Larry Saeed White, and he's an independent filmmaker. And he's done three or four films, uh, mostly black films. Prince of Hitsville, he did about uh, a film about uh, Marvin Gaye. And he has a difficult time marketing those films simply because he uses an all-black cast. So it's right out of the gate, you know, especially in film. You really have that, that image, you know, where racism really is right out in front when you start trying to deal with marketing in terms of marketing a film or selling a film. And so I can understand why they did it. I don't excuse it, but that's pretty much caught par for the courts when you're dealing with film in America because the industry is very, very racist. The the, the entertainment uh, system just in general, not even just film, because uh, uh, I know um, Vita is actually a, a, a fan of uh, my, my younger brother's old group. Uh, way back in the day, there was a group called Imagine, uh, that came out the same time as Britney Spears first came out, and they were um, on the same label, Jive <laughs> Records. I, I just want to laugh uh, real quick. I just want to say, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. Why do you always bring up that story? <laughs> what did you say? I used to have a huge crush oh. on Muhammad's brother. <laughs> but I didn't, this is before I knew him. I just before I knew Muhammad. Yeah. This was 
back when I was a child, and I thought he was hot. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to put that yeah, out there. Well, it's it, put me on blast. But go ahead, make your point. Yeah, <laughs> it was just a kind of blast. A, blast. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a, a, a random thing we found out about each other after uh, me and Vita had formed a friendship. Um, that she actually was a fan of my brother. She found that we. She found out that that was my brother much, you know, much later on. But um, their group. Uh, was only out for about a, a year, maybe a little over a year, um, and it was because of how they were marketed. It, it, they were really talented. They were all very talented young they were uh, young boys. You guys are and, so um, not biased, though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, they were okay, an well, actual band. Like they played act like they act. They had the drummer, yeah. a guitarist, a bass player. Like it wasn't See, just like that's where they dropped you know, the ball B2K. right there. Nobody wants talent anymore. Y'all play instruments. Nobody's checking for that. <laughs> well, they had. They did have a following. The thing was, they weren't marketed. They weren't really pushed out there as much. And it was because they were, um, they they were placed in the category, the urban category, even though they were a a pop band. Like they were, you know, they were a, a, a boy band basically, but gotcha. they were marketed as urban. Like they got just placed in that category, and they weren't marketed the same way that Britney Spears, who was on the same label, um, the way she got marketed, uh, and she, you know, got blown Hanson. up way more. What'd you say? I yeah, Hanson. Hanson ruined it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> Well, I mean, but you know what? I was just thinking about something, and, and Muhammad made me think of it. Um, it's interesting when we talk about marketing, and, and we're saying, you know, on one hand, well, it wasn't necessarily racism part of the marketing, but racist because we live in a society that assumes that people aren't going to be a, aren't going to be interested in that film unless they put the white character at the forefront and the other characters who are kind of washed out in the back. But I was just thinking, how does that? How does that? make you feel if you're an artist, if you are an entertainer, if you're an actor or a singer or whatever, when you've been washed out because of a racist society, because of the assumption that our society is too racist to accept that film in that way. So in even though the marketing is maybe it wasn't intentionally trying to uh, be racist necessarily, but it is still racist to those actors, to those entertainers, to those people who are the stars. I mean, these people are the stars of the film, and they're being washed out in the U.S. How does how would that make you feel as an artist? You know, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Um, I feel that the only way for a black person to shine as a black person um, is in the in, like in the entertainment industry. Um, I'm gonna sp- I'm gonna single out music here because this is where I see it most often. This is to be at once very, very um, African in aesthetics and also to portray that um, soulful, earthy, I want to use the word vibe, that a lot of people associate with um, black nationalists or people who are pro-African, pro-black. Um, you see it a lot um, with artists like um, Erica Badu and Angie Stone and Sky Edwards, and you know they 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 look really African. They look really tribal, but you know she's she's down. She's down for the cause. She's down for the people. And you kind of have to put. You have kind of have to straddle 
um, what people think, what, what black Americans think Africans look and behave like in order to succeed, um, and you have to do it on your own. Like, you have to do it immersed in a genre that is associated with um, with black people, with African diaspora. You have to do it in R&B. You have to do it in hip-hop. You have to do it in neo-soul. You have to do it in jazz, or it's just not going to happen. If you took a woman that looked like Heather Headley and she decided she wanted to be a pop singer, her career would have never taken off. You took a woman who looked like Erica Badu and she wanted and she wanted to do she wanted to do alternative folk music. She, her career would have never taken off, and that's pretty much the only way to play the game. As far as the entertainment industry, we all know that unfortunately, um, films with all black casts have severely fallen off. Um, we have these ratchet shuck and jive messes a la Tyler Perry. And it's sad because my first instinct is to say, go foreign, go into the foreign film market, do Botswana films, do South African films, do Nigerian films. And unfortunately, African-Americans cannot relate to those cultures. They don't have those experiences. And, you know, why wouldn't an African-American actor want to succeed at home on their terms portraying black people in a positive way um, and not this, you know, um, church marm or hoodlum or multiple baby daddy having, um, you know, unintelligent, um, you know, woman living in the projects. Why would you constantly want to play these characters over and over again? Um, It's kind of sad, but like I said, look as black as possible and do neo-soul. That's what works. (laughs) Well, I I have... (laughs) A lot with what she just said just now. Speaking from a hip hop perspective, yeah, many years ago, I remember a conversation I had with a cat, and it drove me crazy. But he was right, and I was very angry because I was uh, producing for a group and rhyming in the group, and we were all pro-black. It was X Clan. We had the damn medallions. We had the spears, and we were talking all about black this, black that. And he just looked me in my face and said, "Conscious rap don't sell." You all want to get out there, you want to have to change what you're doing. And it drove me crazy. I wanted to punch him in the mouth. But he was right. Because we had, no one wanted to, once they got a look at the group and they saw our our picture and our bio, they didn't even want to hear the song. They were not interested. Well, you know, I do want to throw this out there. But, you know, why do we have to be so reliant on mainstream in that way in the first place? I mean, there's, I mean, with the invention of the internet, we don't have to do that anymore. And I think it was Robert Greenlee who also who uh, made, who wrote the book and the, made the film, um, the Spook Who Sat by the Door. And he said that he didn't have nearly as many resources to make a film as we do now, and, and for much lower cost. And yet, and still, we're still instead of creating our own networks. I'm not saying we're not doing it. We are in some ways, but we're not supporting these networks in the ways that we should. Instead of trying to rely on mainstream media to tell us or to support us or to put our pictures in the front, you know, like that's not going to happen. I mean, it, maybe it will eventually, but it's not happening now. And why do we have to wait and rely on that? If conscious rap doesn't sell in the mainstream, but there are a lot of conscious rappers out right now that are that are living quite well off of their off of their uh, shows right. and doing their thing independently and i say quite well i mean we're talking millions of dollars and they're under the radar so why are we so reliant on these uh mainstream images and i know that you guys probably want to get comfortable honestly i think people get comfortable they say this is a way that people that the, the our predecessors who are popular did it 
and this is the way that I want to do it, and this is the only quote-unquote legitimate way to do it. I mean, you're talking about budget. Robert Townsend produced Holly, the movie Hollywood Shuffle all on his credit card, okay? He mm-hmm. paid for everything on his credit card. And that takes a lot of drive, but unfortunately, when you, when you live in a society where everything um, is coming more and more easily to everyone, people start feeling entitled to having everything come easily to them. I also think that a lot of people, like you said, uh, Emily, a lot of people feel like they can't do it. You know, they get that in their minds. This is the only way to do it. I have to go to a major. I have to petition to these uh, big-time producers, or I'm not going to get on. And it's easy for them to get down on themselves or feel like they're going to fail, they can't make it. And so they buy in to the notion that that's the only route they have to success. And I think that that's how we get caught up. If we were more supportive, of underground artists and underground producers and underground uh, filmmakers, and we really kind of put money into our own communities and reinforced the notion that, hey, you can do it on your own. You know, we support our, if we supported more of our own, we right. could get more of our own. We could have our own image. But unfortunately, we don't do that. We really get caught in this rut that says this is the only way we can make it, and we get caught up there. And I think that that's, one, that's a big problem. I think too, I agree. Um, and now I'm actually going. I'm actually going to move on. I'm moving on, guys. Okay. <laughs> we spend, uh, that's like an entire show, right there. Media images yeah, and is. blackness in the entertainment industry. We can totally have a whole show. Of, matter of fact, I might put that on my list um, of, of of potential show topics. But I want to get to this next topic. I just posted a link in the chat room. It's about a case where his uh, family in Pennsylvania, in, uh, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. Yeah, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Um, they didn't take their child to the hospital, and instead they said Jesus was going to heal their child. I'm going to actually Uh-oh. read the article to you. It says, uh, a judge upheld murder charges Wednesday against a fundamentalist Christian couple in their infant's faith-healing death, saying things might be different if their toddler hadn't died four years ago under strikingly similar circumstances. Their probation in that case required Herbert and Catherine I can't say the name properly, Scheibel, I believe, uh, Herbert and Catherine Scheibel, to seek immediate medical help if another child was sick or injured. But they instead prayed over eight-month-old son Brandon before he died of pneumonia in April, according to their police statements. Defense lawyer Bobby Hoof argued that Brandon died just three days after he came down with cold and flu symptoms and said there was no evidence of malice as required for third-degree murder. The judge disagreed. Quote, They learned in the worst possible way exactly what these symptoms could lead to in a child, especially a young child, if not medically cared for, unquote, says Common Pleas Judge Benjamin Lerner. Uh, He's referring to the death of of the 2009 death of two-year-old Kent Scheibel. We've been here before under strikingly similar circumstances. About a dozen U.S. children die each year when parents turn to faith healing instead of medicine, typically from highly treatable symptoms, according to experts. At least one state, Oregon, explicitly banned faith healing as a murder defense after a series of deaths. Well, um, how do you guys feel? One, do you think that parents should be charged with third-degree murder? Not only charged, charged, convicted, and have it upheld. Especially, I mean, in this particular couple, they've had this situation happen before. Um, but should that be a murder charge for parents if they don't get their children to the hospital if they're sick because they're relying on faith? Absolutely, yes. Yes, all kinds of yes. Um, you know, 
you've been with me in different groups when this topic has been brought up. And I remember seeing this topic brought up, I think it was yesterday, in another group, and I was I didn't participate in the thread, but I believe someone made a, a comment like, um, no, no, it was another case where um, the parents were let go because the judge felt that they had learned their lesson due to the death of their child. And, you know, I always say this in, in faith healing stories and in similar situations of parental neglect or abuse. Um, it is, it is, it is a logical fallacy to assume that every parent has their child's best interests at mind or even that every parent loves their child. These parents, mm-hmm. this is their second child to die. They show clearly in praying over this second child, like they prayed over that first child who died, that they love their religion and their faith more than that child's life and their own freedom since this was a condition of their probation. Um, now, I've never had a cold or a flu in my life. Yes, I'm a mutant. I've never had a cold or flu in my life. But I know what mm. that does to people who are elderly or, people or, or, or you know, infants. It's not a joke when a, when a baby comes down with a flu. It, it, three right. days is more than enough time for a baby to die of that. <laughs> but, you know, I do want to ask this question, and this is coming from, I mean, I, I think pretty much everyone here on the line is a free thinker. And by the way, I see people are on the line. If you guys want to participate in the discussion, you have to press 1. If you don't, feel free to stay on the line. Um, I agree to some degree. Like, I agree that um, they should be put on murder murder charges. Now, to say that they love their religion more than their child, I I think that's a very harsh statement to make. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to say why. Um, Being a person who was, raised extremely religious. I was a holy roller. Um, I was also raised in a very uh, strict and extreme Christian Pentecostal situation. And um, we were we strongly believed in faith healing. It's one of the biggest things we believed in. And it's very difficult to break out of that type of mentality when you feel like you've witnessed people being healed. To say that they don't love their children as much as their religion, I don't agree with that. And the, and because you can love your child so much that you think you are doing the best for them. You think you are doing the best for them by praying for them. You think you are loving your child by not taking them to a worldly secular doctor. So I don't necessarily think they love their religion more. I think that they sincerely believed that they were loving their children by trusting in God. And, or their belief. You know what I? So I, I I'd like to see uh, a punishment as a uh, uh, maybe a, a mentally insane kind of a uh, like you know have to go to an that's inst- interesting a, a institution for mental illness if you do if you allow something like that to happen um, treat it like it's because that's that's you know that's really what it is that's a, it's a it's a delusion if you have that you know strong of a delusion that talking to yourself is going to cause your child to miraculously be healed, you need Mm -hmm. help. (laughs) Like that's like a religious belief to that degree. I agree. (laughs) I wouldn't say that they love their child more than they love, I mean, love their religion more than they love their child. However, this is the second child. Now, at some exactly. point, 
Common sense. Well, we're not saying. I don't think anyone said that they shouldn't be punished. I don't think anyone said that they shouldn't be punished at all. I'm certainly not making that statement. I was just disagreeing with that at one point about them loving their religion right. more. I don't think that's a fair statement to make about uh, religious people. Maybe not. But I don't. I, I, how do you? What? Where? How do you maneuver that though? What? What? At what point do you look at as, as a parent? I'm looking at my child, and I can see what you can see. If a child has a flu, you can see them deteriorating. They go from playing, then all of a sudden. But you're talking sick, about a, but you're talking from a position where you're obviously not brainwashed. I was okay. Like, being okay. Let me I'm going to clarify my this. statement. I'm going to clarify my statement and, and say exactly why I feel these people love their religion more than their child. And obviously, now I wasn't raised Pentecostal. I was raised Catholic, and it was a much more somber religious environment. However, this is why I feel the way I feel. Um, I could have given these parents the benefit of the doubt. I usually give parents the benefit of the doubt because I always want to believe that every parent wants the best for their kids. However, your religion failed one child already. It failed you, and you had to bury a child. And I want to believe that there's no parent on the face of the earth that wants to bury their own child. And Do you think brainwashing is real? Already. Do you think um, brainwashing is real? Yes and no. I believe that no. there is a level where it's so extreme, like w- the level that they've reached, where you kind of have to give into it for it to work. I, I see. Well, I'm, I'm I leaning that way. I do believe that brainwashing is real. And like you, Vita, I also grew up in a Pentecostal household. My father was a minister, rest his soul, and he was all he was he was all in. He was quote unquote saved. But my thing is this, though. At some point. They made up their minds, looking at their child, seeing their child deteriorate, they made up their minds that they were going to stick with their religion rather than do what they needed to do to get that child some help. So in essence, in my mind, they but prioritized they they were helping, but the other missing over the yeah, yeah, they were of a child. Listen, this is the problem, though. They thought they were helping. They sincerely believed that they that they if they believe in truly in their hearts that this was going to work for whatever reason granted they already lost a child to this maybe you know there's all kind we all know the, all the types of rationalization people do when it comes to religion I want to get to some callers um because I, I know we all can jump in on this uh caller six can I have your name and where you're calling from if your area code is two oh six your line is open yes can I have your name okay my name is Danielle. Can you guys Hi, hear Danielle. Me? How are you? Hi. I'm so good. Guys. How are you guys? I was I, I I only intended to listen, but when you guys got on the subject about children and faith healing and parents, um, that affected me especially because I am a parent. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and when my daughter was 22 months old, she actually did become gravely ill with pneumonia. She almost died. Um. And at that time, I was still a theist. I was raised missionary Baptist. My family is very religious, not quite on the same level of Pentecostals, um, but but still very devout. Now, me as a parent, sitting in the hospital and getting all of this dire news and having to talk with a team of surgeons and pediatricians, when they told me what was going on, and what they needed to do for her to get better, they needed to perform um, a surgery on her, they needed to open up her chest and drain her left lung, my attitude, even as a Christian, was do whatever you need to do to save my child's life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I kind of tend to actually agree with Emmeline's point because as a parent, to me, your concern for your child and their well-being has to override all of that other stuff. If I had to argue with anybody in the church telling me I'm wrong, I would do that, like, but this you know, is the thing. I'm not disagreeing mm-hmm. with that. I 100% agree with that. Parents should do what they what they what is what is right for their child. I 100% agree with that. I don't and there's no I don't think anyone would disagree with that. What I'm saying is that these are people who were so brainwashed. And I'm speaking as a person who was brainwashed. When I say I was brainwashed. I believe I'm confessing this on the radio, and I think I've shared this on Facebook, some of the groups. But I was raised in a Christian cult. There was, we had a prophet we obeyed, we listened to, who counseled us, who told us what to do. We had a prophet who told my father to give away my brother's, all my brother's money to his church because uh, my brother, my brother had uh, my, from a lawsuit like seven to ten thousand dollars or something, and the man, the, the prophet, wanted that money, and my father gave it. Mind you, we were living in poverty. So, and that was my brother's money that he got in a lawsuit from uh, suing the school district. So, I, I, I'm not saying my father uh, was just didn't think in our best interest. He sincerely believed it was an investment in our future because his prophet told him that. That's what, that's what brainwashing is. It's not that you don't care about your child. If the prophet had to, if, if I got sick and the prophet told him, don't take her to the, to the doctor, and he, what happens, the thing, this is what happens when you're brainwashed, okay, when you go to these types of churches. They keep telling you these stories over and over again. Oh, so-and-so went to the hospital, didn't listen to me as a prophet, and their baby died. So-and-so listen to Listen, 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 listen. I'm not, I'm not even done. Let me finish. Let me finish. Uh, they... What they're what I'm saying is when you hear these kind of stories over and over again, one, you start to believe in the power of this prophet. Okay. Two, you start to think. Well, if I, you start to fear that if I don't obey, my child will die. So what I'm I'm not saying that these people. You should, I, I think it's hard for people who have not been in that type of brainwashing situation to really understand what that's like. Because one of the biggest things that I still have to deal with even today, even as an atheist, is that part of my life, and it's very very difficult. And I'm and I'm not saying that these parents aren't wrong. They're dead ass wrong. They're 100 percent wrong, and they should be put up on charges. And they should. And I'm glad this judge upheld those charges. But I, what I'm saying is to say that these people don't love, that they love their religion more or that they value their religion more or that they don't they didn't have the best interest of their child at heart, I 100% disagree with that. Um, caller 804, I see you. Um, you have pressed one. Can I have your name? Yes. How you doing? This is Deborah. How y'all doing? Hi, Deborah. Hi, Deborah. How are you? Welcome back to the show. All right. Um, inter- interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, at the end of the I don't understand how people can get that brainwashed, for one thing. But, I, yes, you're right. But at the end of the day, they probably said in the back of their head, God called them home. Exactly. Right, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the rationalization that's that religious people give, yes. You know, that's weird. God called them home. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know. I, I hear what you're, I hear what Vita was saying about you know these prophets tell you these stories, but like I'm gonna be honest with you, maybe I'm giving people too much credit. Maybe I think reality is too hard. However, <laughs> I are. want to believe that no matter how much you've been told, when you have to be at your child's funeral, you have to see your child put in the ground. You will never ever do that again, and this is the second time, and that's what I cannot okay. get past. But there's a rational. I, 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 I But there's a rational. 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. Who wants to say something? Well, I I agree. I agree with Vita. I mean, I, I'm my background is I was a psychology major in college. I, I was actually double majored psychology and religion. So those two topics interest me a lot. And one of the things I really, one of the things I came to understand was like people really can become very delusional. Like it's it's it's. Mm-hmm. It is very possible, and it doesn't mean, you know, what, with what they did, with what those parents did, um, that it was in any way, in, you know, uh, uh, you can't really say whether or not they cared about their child just based on the the, the fact that right. they, you know, went the faith healing route rather than the, um, you know, mainstream medicine um, kind of route. So, but... Um, if they really did believe, you know, it is very possible that they really did believe that they were helping their kids, but it was the wrong thing for them to do. But they should, mm-hmm. but here's the thing about it, like punishment, um, sending somebody to prison or, you know, it, it, it's supposed to either um, stop, a, a, stop a crime from happening um, or to serve as like a, a uh, basically, a, a punishment for what they did, so they so they learn, you know, they learn not to do it anymore. But if somebody's brainwashed like that, it that's sending them to prison is not going to teach them a lesson. It, it won't. It, it's but it, it really what really has to be addressed. They have to break out of this conditioning. I really think it's a it's a mental issue. It's a it's it a is kind a mental of, issue. Here, here, let me say this though, because I'm, I'm, I'm actually in a unique position here because I actually lost a child, my wife and I, when she she carried the term when she was carrying twins and we she had a rare disorder and we lost both of them. And that was I've never experienced pain like that before. And so that's why I'm so into my kids now that the kids that I have is because when I first when we first tried it was a big question as to whether we were able to have children at all. And I agree with what Vita is saying. Almost 100%. I have to stop just short because she's absolutely right when she says that the conditioning is there. The conditioning is really hard to the point where it's almost like hypnosis. They really drive home these stories and these beliefs to people, and people buy completely in. I have to stop just short and lean towards Emmeline because it's not that I don't think that they did not have what they believe to be love for their child. But at the end of the day, the conditioning was so strong that they opted with their religion rather than looking at their child and seeing their child deteriorate before their eyes and taking action. They said, I got to stay with this faith. And I agree mm-hmm. with Muhammad. The conditioning is really strong. But what do we do? That's my question because when you start that's to say, okay, now religion is brainwashing, a lot of religious people going to kick that back at you. And you can't go to a religious person, or we all know that you can't go to somebody that's religious, deeply religious, and say you're being brainwashed. Mm-hmm. And that's an argument you don't no, want to have. I, and I agree with that. Those. I agree with that. But nobody's making excuses for them. Nobody's saying that they shouldn't be punished. I actually don't think that prison is going to help. I don't think prison helps really anybody, to be honest with you. But I, I can save that for later on in the, in the show. I definitely <laughs> think their incarceration and getting the other children away from them will help a great deal. <laughs> Those I don't think it's going to help them at all. I, I think I think incarceration, but I, that's a whole other thing. I actually have another caller, and I want to make sure they get their comment in before I go to the next topic. And I kind of got to rush through the next one because I have a, a guest calling in. Uh, caller 678, I know you wanted to weigh in. Yeah, if you're I Eric, did, 678, but yeah. 
What's your name? My name is Patrick. Um, I don't want to be rushed through, so if you want to go through the next topic, I can wait. Because I'm a very patient person. <laughs> I'm a very, I'm a very patient person. So I, so I can wait. Okay. We can go through the next topic. Oh, okay. But however, if okay. you're gonna give, if you can give me about sixty seconds, and somebody can time me, um, in oh, 60 I can seconds, give you about thirty. You totally just use like thirty seconds though. Right. Uh, yeah, I know, and I knew you was gonna say that because I've heard you before. I've well, heard I really, you before. Okay, I tell you what, there's one topic I do want to get um to that I think if y'all, you guys will find very interesting. Um, and I'm posting that link in the chat room right now. Um, this is about the world's first genetically modified babies. And uh, I, I want to give a shout-out to my Grand Unified family because they're all about science, and I know that they're really – I'm sure they would find this very, very interesting. So basically, um, the world's first genetically modified humans have been created. It was revealed last night, and I'm reading from Mail Online – I'm sorry, DailyMail.com. UK, so it's Daily Mail. Um, the world's first genetically modified humans have been created. It was revealed last night. The disclosure that 30 healthy babies were born after a series of experiments in the United States provoked another furious debate about ethics. So far, two no. of the babies have been tested. And, yeah, so far, two of the babies have been tested and have been found to contain genes from three parents. Fifteen of the children were born in the past three years as a result of one experimental program at the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science of St. Barnabas in New Jersey. Babies were born to women who had problems conceiving. Extra genes from a female donor were inserted into their eggs before they were fertilized in an attempt to enable them to conceive. Genetic fingerprint tests on two one-year-old children confirmed that they have inherited DNA from three adults, two women and one man. The fact that the children have inherited the extra genes and incorporated them into their germline means that they will, in turn, be able to pass them on to their own offspring. Altering the human germline, germline, in effect, tinkering with their very makeup of our species, is a technique shunned by the vast majority of world scientists. Geneticists fear that one day this method could be used to create new races of humans with extra desired characteristics such as strength or high intelligence. What do you guys think? <laughs> okay, can I, can I since I was the since I was the last one on, can can I comment on that? Uh, yes, Patrick, go ahead. Okay, okay. What we don't understand about that is that we are not in tune to what's called eugenics, cryogenics. When you go back to Charles Darden Darwin and the evolution of man and all of those things that encompass that. That's why they're bringing us forward to what's going on today. We're creating synthetic human beings. And now we're just sitting there and waiting for news reports, and we're trying to understand how this whole process is matriculating itself when we should actually be studying our history because this information has been stolen from the true artifact of the origination of human beings. Mm -hmm. And where we're getting crossed up is we're trying to prove each other wrong. 
not saying that anybody's doing anything wrong. I'm saying we're trying to prove each other wrong in the sense that, okay, I got information that you don't have, you have information that I don't have. No, we have information that we need to share. We have information that we need to bring together. Okay. And we have information. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, Go ahead. Oh, no, it's, it's ahead. fine. And I, I, I appreciate you uh, saying, saying that uh, or participating in the conversation. I don't know much about any of that stuff, but I think there are some people who are in the chat room who are kind of, uh, yeah, I don't think they're agreeing wholeheartedly. Um, one comment was made in the chat room that Darwin had nothing to do with eugenics. And you brought no, well, well, well. The whole the whole theory of Darwinism. Let's go back. Darwinism was all about the evolution of man. Okay, it was the evolution of man from a primal organism, meaning that it went from ape to cognizant to actual manhood. Now, that's the exoteric meaning of Darwinism. If you actually study Darwin and his family lineage and where he Which came from, okay, okay, what okay. Darwin talked about was esoteric. The esoteric message is survival of the fittest. That means that you interbreed. That means that only certain people who have the advantage of being part of the bloodline are able to dictate what goes on in the world. Okay. That's not what well, um, but, survival of the, the fittest means. Yeah, it's what not. Survival mean? of the fittest means that you're a part of the bloodline. Let me give you an example. Let wait, 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 Patrick, Patrick, That's not Patrick, what it means. I want to give other That's people you're, you're a chance actually to wrong. talk. Yeah. I want to give other people a chance to, to, to participate because I do have to move on. So thank you, Patrick. I want, I want other people to uh, go ahead and respond. What were you going to say? That's Muhammad. Yeah, that wasn't the so survival of the fittest. It, it just means survival of whatever. It, it just means that um, a species that is most fit to their environment is the most likely to pass on its genes. That's all. You know, exactly so right. If it's cold, if it's cold, a, a, a creature that has more fur than another will be more likely to produce offspring. You know, that it it's it's really as simple as that. If you know if if the branches are high for the fruit is high on the tree, the the creature that has the longer neck will be more fit to you know or the the creature that can climb better than it's you know, than the other one. That that's all survival of the fittest means. Um, in response to the article, um I obviously disagree with Patrick's assessment that we are creating um, synthetic human beings. Um, since these people have um, um, human DNA, they are not synthetic. Um, obviously, the circumstances um, under which they were um, conceived are are not exactly um, natural or spontaneous, but, you know, they are people. They are clearly are different from other people since you're talking about um, three strands of DNA um, running through one person. Um, what my issue was and what you read was how, um, I think it was somewhere in this article you said that um, there's a debate about ethics 
and creating people who are stronger and more intelligent. And I'm, I'm thinking athleticism is going to play into that. And, um, and aesthetics are going to play a role in that. But my whole issue is I don't know why people are debating those specific things or anything at all, but those specific things when we, we can already do that with two people. I mean, Usain Bolt is the fastest man on earth, and he was, born of, he was conceived of two people. Um, you have people that are that are naturally very tall, naturally very strong, um, not not have you know naturally desirable um, facial features. Um, there are people who copulate with people of certain facial features and skin tones in order to pass it on to their children. This is not new. Just because we're doing it with a group of scientists doesn't make any of this new. The only thing new here is that these these human beings have you know, um, it's not a 50-50 split with DNA. They were conceived of three people. That's the only thing that's mm-hmm. new here, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, especially when we're talking about, especially if they could do it with two men and a wom- woman, because in in both cases you would give an equal um, chance to have biological offspring to both lesbian and gay couples. Um, mm-hmm. Now, speaking as a person who has absolutely no desire to have hetero, uh, to have um, biological children, I don't I don't know why anyone would want to have biological children so badly that they would go to this extreme and I'm sure this was quite expensive but if you want it the option should be there for you and if it's there and these children are healthy I don't see anything wrong with it. Thank you so much Emmeline. I actually want the only reason I'm going to unfortunately I don't have any more time for the news topics and I I wanted to get to the weed story but I couldn't so <laughs> I want to go ahead and <laughs> I don't know why. Anyway, um, we have some special uh, guests that are going to call in. That are calling in right now, actually. And um, tonight we have a special update from Citizens for a Sustainable Future, whose mission is to facilitate and promote sustainable living in African American communities by using. Sorry, I kind of lost my page. Um, by using research-driven solutions that improve the ability of African Americans to pursue environmental justice for present and future generations. Bruce Strobel, Jr., Goliath Davis IV, and Jay English, a.k.a. Honors English from Citizens for Sustainable Future, are in supporting the Dream Defenders, are in Florida supporting the Dream Defenders. The Dream Defenders are a group of students that have staged a sit-in at the Florida governor's office to protest the state standard ground laws. Um, So I want to go ahead and welcome them. Uh, welcome to Citizens for a Sustainable Future. How are you? Bruce, is that you? What's up? What's going on? Yeah, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. So I kind of want to find out what's going on. You guys are down there. Um, well, first of all, let me ask, what, why is your organization uh, participating in this? What, what inspired your organization to participate? Uh, well, we as an organization have a number of shared interests with the Dream Defenders. Um, not only on a political level in the sense that we support sustainable living and some of the things that are part of our platform are also a part of their political platform, um, as well as we know some of them on a personal level. And me, personally, I'm an artist, and Talib Ali is here, so um, I'm connecting with him as well on making some music to support this movement in a musical format. That's great, and I love Talib Kweli, and I was telling Bruce uh, <laughs> earlier, I met Talib Kweli um Last September, and he hugged me three times and gave me a kiss on the cheek. That's nothing to do with anything. I have to share that on radio. 
anything. I just wanted to tell you that. Um, but so, how have you taken on uh, any role other than supportive one while you guys have been there? Uh, nothing official. No official role. We're here more so just uh, collaborate. We're a think tank. Um, so we sit here, we, we talk with the members, uh, we're talking about more ideas, how they're going to move forward, just trying to help facilitate thinking, uh, strategic planning, things of that nature. But we've not taken any official role. We've kind of just been observing, and it's good to see these young people out here really leading the way on this. They're really, uh, they're really organized. They're really serious about what's going on. So uh, the Dream Defenders, they're very bright. They're very courageous. They're very empowered. What is that energy like while you're there? I mean, you just talked about, you know, the fact that you guys are trying to synergize and get some ideas. But what is that? What does that energy feel like? Does it still feel? Because when I watch the news, I see very hype, very powerful youth speaking and say, protesting. I mean, is, that energy is still there. I say that it's very optimistic. I guess optimistic is the word that I would use. Um, they're all serious. Oh, okay. They're here with a mission. They know exactly what they're doing. They have agendas that they go through like clockwork, and it's very efficient. But at the same time, they don't take themselves seriously. They are here. Um, they're dedicated, but they are really living it up right now. They just finished a cipher earlier. So I would say optimistic in the sense that they're sure that as long as they stay here, as long as they don't bend, then the things that they want done are going to get done. They're out there singing right now. They're chanting. They're dancing. I mean, it, it's... We're, here, right? we're in the corner hiding because you, you wouldn't be able to hear us if you weren't. It's day 24. <laughs> okay. Day 24, they're not letting up. I don't see them letting up until uh, the governor uh, gives in or the, the legislator gives in to the, the, the mail. Has there exactly. been any progress made as far as the governor addressing them and their demands? The only thing that we've heard of, to my knowledge, is the fact that the Speaker of the House and the state legislature said that he would hold a hearing on standing ground. Now, one of the things that we suggest, one of the ideas that we had that we were collaborating on was to try and um, get standing ground on the ballot. For referendum. For referendum, because it was passed, essentially, by the state legislature, but it was never actually put to a vote. The people before, they never actually got a chance to vote. It was special interest lobbyists who forced the law through, and it was signed by Jeb Bush. So putting on a referendum will actually get citizens before the chance to actually vote on if they want to keep it or if they want to make any amendments to it, so forth, so So it actually be something that was decided by the collective, not just a few people. And see, once it goes into that arena, it, it becomes an issue where it's just mobilization, and that's another place we want to help is organizing a student voting block throughout the state, and then hopefully this is something that could go national. We see young people and people of like interest all coming together to converge strategic voting. Not so much partisan voting as we're used to, either Democrat or Republican, but strategic. Where we're choosing candidates based on issues alone, and that's going to be something that we're pushing for. Issues that affect college students or high school students? What do you mean? You said you uh, the voting block for students. Students who are of the voting age. So, you know, legal voting age is okay. 18 students. We're primarily targeting it to our college students because this is a college Oh, you're talking about got. officially got it. Okay. I wasn't really clear. So you mentioned that right. the right. Florida House Speaker, Will Weatherford, uh, you just said Will Weatherford, but I have the <laughs> name here. Uh, will Weatherford announced Friday that he will order hearings this fall on the state stand your ground law. But has the state in any way made any mention of the other dream defender demands regarding uh, addressing racial profiling and the school to prison pipeline no. at all? Have you heard any? They haven't addressed anything in regards to that. No, they haven't. 
hey, they haven't addressed that yet. Um, but that's something that is the dream defenders are standing firm on. So um, I don't think that just this special session is going to clear everything up. Uh, they're still going to have to deal with these people, uh, and they seem pretty determined. So, like I said, uh, promoting that voting block, getting more people involved, spreading the word, I think this is going to become a larger issue. Um, so, yeah, I think the Dream Defenders are going to be pretty persistent with that. Um, I don't know if any of my panelists, uh, Emmeline, Doxon, or Muhammad, mm-hmm. if any of you guys had any questions for them while they're there in Florida. Do you guys, any of you guys Actually, have any questions was- for them? Actually, my friend um, Mohammed Malik um, invited me um, to come up with the Dream Defenders um, to Tallahassee. I think maybe a few of you are familiar with him. Um, he's a community organizer here in South Florida, um, and he um, went to a few of the rallies for Trayvon Martin. And all I can say is you guys are doing an excellent job, um, excellent work. I mean, the Dream Defenders have been doing this for a very long time. I, I, I believe it all started with the Dream Act, um, and, you know, Florida is definitely one of the places that needs local organized activism because our, our governors are just our governors just dropped the ball. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Emily. Um, I said Florida is definitely. A, I said that's it. I was like, Florida is definitely a place oh. that needs the local activism. You guys are doing a great job because our governor is consistently dropping the ball, and I'm glad that there are you know, um, people that are willing to do something locally and, you know, take it take it to the Capitol if necessary. Okay. I, and that's great. That, why didn't you, um, like, why aren't you down there right now? <laughs> I couldn't Emily. travel. I could not travel. <laughs> I'm just well, I didn't have a question. I wanted to uh, first give the brothers, you know, enough respect for the things that they're doing. I think that it's great that they're out there. And I think that, uh, you know, I wanted to show them some support for continuing to do what they do. I did have a question for them. Are they seeing a lot of diversity on the ground in terms of, is it strictly brothers and sisters, or are there all other races involved, and is there a lot of diversity in the effort to get that uh, law overturned? I mean, it's it's optimal diversity, brother. Uh, It's a lot of white kids down here. A lot of Latinos have come in. And, you know, it's a student youth movement, so it's not – there is majority African Americans out there, but – they seem to be all inclusive. Uh, you know, they almost look colorblind the way I see it. Uh, they're approaching the issue from this is everybody's problem. And even earlier, uh, the president uh, was speaking, and she pretty much made the um, mention that this was not just a black or Latino issue. Uh, they also believe in protecting the earth and things of that nature. They want justice for the earth as well. So uh, it's just really impressive to hear a lot of the things they're saying, and we're just down here trying to support them in whatever ways we can. How, how I think big it's is interesting it? to. Well, I was like, just real quick. Um, we got to piggyback off of the uh, question about the diversity. Is so? You're, are you saying that it's more of a, a unity, not just a black group with allies? It's more of a united effort. No, no there are other members of the Dream Defenders who are not black. Uh, different Latino groups and whites. Right? You mind? They have okay. um, branches on other college campuses also across the uh, state. So they have one at University of Florida. So I'm pretty sure that that's going to be a lot more, probably a lot more diverse than what you would see necessarily in Tallahassee. Okay, and uh, Muhammad, you had a question. Oh, I was just saying, like, how big, how uh, big is this? I'm not. I, I I've heard a little bit about it. I haven't really been following it. Um, very closely. And I was curious how large, how widespread it is, like how, how many people are 
Uh, party I mean, just no, we can't speak on the numbers ourselves. But well, I um, estimate it's about 100, 200 people in here earlier today. Yeah. There's at least 100 oh. people in here. There's enough people in here now that we had to retreat into the bathroom. Otherwise, we would not be able to have this conversation. Is that loud? Oh. oh Can I wow. ask a question? Yes, Deborah. I just wanted to ask, um, have you seen a lot of participation from the, the churches? No, we have not, in, um, or at least I have not while I'm here. Oh. There, I, I, I will say that I did see a pastor and a rabbi come down here to speak with the Dream Defenders, and they said some prayers together. So it does seem to be some uh, re- support from the religious community, but uh, it's nothing overwhelming. And if, if it is here, it's not very, um, they're not very evident. Like, they're not standing out if, if there's a religious to my knowledge, there is one church that's uh, close to downtown that's actually letting them use their facility for for bathing in the morning because there are you know there are no showers here. So in the morning, when it opens back up, they go shower, brush their teeth, do what have you, then they come right back here. Oh, okay. So there are churches who are supporting the effort, but they're not necessarily uh, leading or the effort at all. Yeah. Exactly. Or at least from our okay. observation. Okay. Um. I don't know if anyone else has any other questions for you guys. Um, if you guys are in the chat room and you want to ask a question, you can go ahead and ask it in the chat. Um, I do want to thank you guys for the work you guys are doing and by going down there to support the youth um, in this work. And I also uh, am very glad that you guys are doing this work uh, as an organization. I wanted to talk a little bit about your organization. If you wouldn't mind sharing um, some of your goals and what you guys hope to achieve within the next year or so. All right, well, our organization, again, is called Citizens for a Sustainable Future, and our goal is to facilitate and promote sustainable living within African-American communities. And we've identified um, areas that we call sustainable living practices. Um, They include things like growing your own food, meaning supporting community gardens and urban farming, eating healthier food if you don't have um, access to locally grown food, just changing your diet. And they range as far even as um, supporting and promoting um, breastfeeding, more so than the black community. Collective economics, collective civic engagement. So it's a lot of things that we're trying to promote, and we think that by pushing those ideals, we can see uh, substantive changes in African-American communities. So now in the near future, we have an initiative called uh, SUNS. It's an acronym for Sustainable Urban Nutrition System. And we're going to be working on getting more urban farming initiatives and more um, community gardens necessary, but particularly more urban farming initiatives going on in Tallahassee and surrounding areas. We have a um, more so an oral partnership with a group known as the Dunn Street Youth Farm um, in a um, majority black neighborhood here in Tallahassee. And we're also going to be conducting training in a few weeks to undergo aquaponics training, which is a system where you're growing plants and raising fish together collaboratively so that... Uh, you're essentially using the water from the fish and, you know, their waste in order to fertilize the plants. The plants then, um, of course, clean out the waste, and then the water gets the clean water gets cycled back down to the fish tank. So, you know, it's a one continuous cycle. You can raise a lot of plants and also raise a lot of fish in a system like that, and also a system called hydroponics, where both of those are ideal of growing a lot of food in a small amount of space. So once we have that training, we'll be able to actually have workshops where we teach other people how to use that system as well. Wow. 
Um, you guys actually gave me an idea for a show topic, and I think I'm going to have you guys back on to talk about it. <laughs> and I actually might have you guys help uh, co-host that discussion. <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate you guys very, very much, and I appreciate the work that you do. And I thank you guys for calling in and giving us kind of an update and a report of what's taking place down in Florida with the Dream Defenders. Um, you guys are welcome to stay on the line. We're going to be talking a little bit later about the school to prison pipeline. I'm going to take a quick break only because I have to get myself together for the next segment. Um, thank you to everyone who's called in on the first half of the show. And now we're going to move into the second. Right now we're going to play a song. Uh, right, give me some time to get. Thank you. Thank you. Have a uh, right, if you're gonna stay on the line, feel free. If you can't stay on, that's fine. Okay. But um, yeah. So right now, I'm gonna take a quick break, and uh, you got about three minutes to kind of get yourself together. Tell your friends on Facebook and Twitter to go ahead and tune in. Pass them the link. Tell them to call in so we can really get this conversation going about the school to prison pipeline and how it actually disproportionately affects our community, um, the black community in particular. Um, right now, I'm playing a song by Trauma, Trauma Brahma, my brother, my brother from another mother, and actually, my actual brother is actually on this song, <laughs> Postman, so shout out to Postman. Um, dream big as a special tribute to the Dream Defenders and getting us into the next segment. Uh, here we go, Trauma, Dream Big. I'm a dream big, like I was a kid again Mama always said I had the talent for the Benjamin Life's more than just partying with friends It's more than buying big whips and making the rim spin You wanna have it all, but you gotta learn to crawl Know that you'll make mistakes and sometimes you'll probably fall It's okay, they say failure is a state of mind As long as you're not wasting time, always stay up on the grind Take a look at me, I'm coming up successfully Never miss a rhythm in the beat, you get the best of me Please believe me, you can be successful too Gotta make your own reason, but remember to stay true Thanks. 
take a risk, but estimate every step you take. Accept the facts and expect mistakes, but never settle for less than great. Uh, yeah, if you listen to your intuition, you can bring your wildest dreams into fruition. I mean, anything in the mind can envision could be brought to life like designs and inventions. Sometimes it's divine intervention, beyond the limits of time and dimension. Oh, I meant to mention, we gotta break down the boundaries of science and religion. Get it how you live it, no exaggeration. You gotta have a vivid imagination. I was the last one in class that made it, but I still graduated. Dream big. Welcome back to Black Free Thinkers Radio. This is on Black Vita Star. I'm your host, Vita Star, and uh, I definitely want to say thank you to everyone who was uh, participating in the first half of the show, and uh, thank you to my guest panelists, Emily Mousseau, Muhammad Kareem, and Doc Sin. Um, I forgot to give the website for our organization. is C4SF.org. Citizens for a Sustainable Community. If you want to get more information on them and, you know, maybe you want to participate, donate, whatever, um, www.c4sf.org. And I posted that link in the chat room. Um, let's get into the main topic. The school to Can I say pipeline. something really quick, Vita? Really quick. What is it about? It is about the brothers, the Dream Defenders. I just want to get this out really uh, fast. Eat me up. Uh, um, okay. I listened to the young brothers speak, and I, I get so frustrated because I'm here in the South, and you hear guys like Bill O'Reilly, Don Lemon, talking about how black people need to take uh, take responsibility in their own communities. Young people need to take responsibility. Those brothers are doing exactly that. There are no cameras. There are no news people down there. They are in there in the trenches getting it done. And I think it's – I just had to point that out because I get so tired of that disingenuous argument that young brothers aren't taking responsibility for their own and their communities. So big up to those cats. And just a reminder, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just had to get that out, you know, because it drives me nuts. I hear it so much. You know what I'm saying? Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That. That's exactly, I respect that. Thank you. Yeah, and I totally appreciate that. And that's exactly why I love doing radio and I love doing media is because of that. We don't get enough coverage of these types of things. And we long, and I believe that as long as we as a community keep pushing these images and pushing these stories and telling these stories, you know, we won't have to worry too much about the Bill O'Reilly's. I mean, maybe we'll all have to worry about it in mainstream America, but as far as our community, as long as we're pushing it and promoting it in our communities and countering the images that are you see all the time in the media, I think we're going to be okay. And it's just, that's why I do this work. So thank you so much, Dr. Sin, for that. And, again, I want to thank Citizen for Sustainable Community for their report and for the work that they're doing down there and beyond. Thank you very much. And right now we are in our main topic, the school to prison pipeline. What is it? How does it affect us in the black community? Is there really even a pipeline to prison for young students? Some people don't even think that exists. So, well, right now we're about to put it all on blast. And uh, for some people who aren't really sure how the school-to-prison pipeline works, I talked a little bit at the beginning of the show explaining what that is, and I'm going to actually I'm going to go ahead and repeat it. The school-to-prison pipeline is a term used to describe the way in which youth, in particular students, are pushed out of school and into the criminal justice system. The pipeline is a result of public institutions neglecting to properly address students as individuals who might need extra educational or social assistance or being unable to do so because of staffing shortages or statutory mandates. This 
results in miseducation and mass incarceration uh, of our youth, and said to create a vicious circle for individuals and communities. So that's what the school prison pipeline is, and there are various ways in which, and as I described in that description, that the school to prison pipeline is perpetuated, the way it is way the way it is continuing. And one of those ways is through school suspensions, um, ex- expulsions, and they're disproportionately given out. I don't know if anyone um, here has any uh, extensive knowledge in the school to prison pipeline that they might want to throw in there, but uh, I wanted to know from you guys, do you guys, first of all, do you guys think the school to prison pipeline is actually real? Do you believe that, our, that we have a school system that is uh, intentionally pushing Hell our yeah. youth? Oh, <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe I can fix that. Is that better? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. It's much better. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I wanted to find out from you guys, do you guys actually believe that there is a school-to-prison pipeline? That, is, is there an actual intention behind the fact that there are more students dropping out of school and ending up in prison? Uh, we'll start with Emmeline. Um, yes, I believe it's very, very, very real. Um, you know, statistically, in statistics, you know, there is a lot of margin of error there. But, um, you know, annually, there are over 3 million kids that drop out. And this is, these are statistics as recent as April of this year. Um, over 3, 3 million, excuse me, um, kids drop out annually from high school. Um, and as a high school dropout, there are 90% of the jobs out there you're not eligible for. Um, 60% of black dropouts spend time in prison. Um, now, I have a friend, um, very close friend of mine, who um, taught for a couple years with Teach America, and she was based in the Philadelphia area. And she would talk, talk, talk to me about how, you know, a lot of these students, their home environments were so dismal. Um, nearly every single one of her students had a mother or father or their guardian who had spent time in jail, and their situation was so impoverished that she would be bringing um, soap and toothbrushes and washcloths and maxi pads for her students, school supplies for her students. She was spending more than half her paychecks keeping, giving her, buying basic necessities for her students. And they lived in bleak situations, and they didn't see, you know, much going on or about to happen in their future. And there was a prison nearby, and there were a few liquor stores nearby, and there was a strip club nearby. And, of course, like with every poor black neighborhood, there were tons and tons of churches nearby. But, you know, this is the environment that you're in. They're surrounded by the prison. They're surrounded by the poverty. They're surrounded by people who have been to prison. They don't have those examples of people who who finished school and avoided incarceration and did something meaningful with their lives. Oh, I'm done for now. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll I'll speak. I'll just I guess speak from I guess any anecdotal experience that I've had. Because um, I used to be a, a substitute teacher for a number of years, um, and I've also briefly taught for um, the Princeton Review. The the I, I did the math portion, and they did a with the Princeton Review, they occasionally will do a kind of charity case uh, where they will go to um, uh, underprivileged schools and they'll do like a free like mini session. And they did one in uh, Trenton, and, and I was there 
um, as a teacher there at the Trenton High School. And the first thing I noticed when I went there, um, the school was very, itself seemed very dismal. It almost felt like walking into a prison when you walked into the, the high school itself. It was very dark. It was very, it, it, it just didn't have a good feel to it. And then I remember speaking with one of the other teachers who said that um, when when uh, she had done this before, uh, she usually brings candy for the kids. Um, and like you know, they this is a common thing. They always bring stuff for the for for the for the kids when they do their teaching. But when she brought um, candy to this high school to this to these kids. At the end of the session, one of the kids, like, the kids weren't paying attention that much, and, and when, you know, at the end of the session, uh, one of the kids came up to her and said, why do you bring this, you know, we don't deserve it, you know, or something, she, they, you know, they responded something like that, you know, we, we're not worth it, or, you know, like, why give this to us? Um, so it's just like, you know, they, they don't have um, a lot of, they're not shown uh, uh, you know how valuable they are. Um, a lot of times in schools, it's it's not really about. Uh, a lot of schools that I've been that I've substitute taught at, there there didn't seem particularly with the um, black kids uh, a very big effort to get them to see their value in themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just more about you know, obeying rules and doing what they're supposed to do um, and, you know, punishing them for not break, for not obeying rules. Um, but it didn't, it didn't really seem like it was, there was any, now there were teachers who cared, but it didn't seem like the structure of the, you know, the system was geared to. I, uh, to I, I agree with that. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a them. general I think that's a general um, problem. I mean, I, I don't. By general, I'm saying that I don't think that's exclusive to just the schools and the schools' treatment. Um, I think that's something that we see in some schools across the country, as far as black youth seeing their own value. And it's hard to see your own value when you're only taught in school anyway that everybody that's great in this world is white. Everybody else was a slave or conquered. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I think even in that, I mean, it, it coupled with the fact that a lot of times black students or students in low-income areas are treated pretty poorly. I know my high school in um, L.A., in South South Central Los Angeles or South L.A., um, was definitely at one point started to look, look like a school. Then over the, my, by the time my senior year came, it looked pretty much like a juvenile hall. I mean, there, we even had bars, I kid you not, bars with spikes on them inside the science building, inside. And it's totally for our own protection um, or to keep us from going outside which I find kind of, I have a problem with that anyway, trapping students out of a school because, for whatever reason, saying it's for their own good, which I don't even think that's true. And I think these images are also a part of creating that school-to-prison pipeline in addition to the school policies that take place. So, for example, um, black male students are suspended at a much higher rate than any other group at all, black females being the next group. And the reason... Uh, that a lot of these black youth are suspended are over minor things, having a cell phone, rolling their eyes. And for the teachers, send them to the principal. The principal suspends them or expels them. 
because there's a zero tolerance policy, which is a big problem of the uh, school to prison pipeline, being able to just suspend kids constantly. The problem with school suspensions, people don't realize, is that students who are suspended are much more likely to drop out of high school. And guess where most high school dropouts end up? Who wants to take a wild guess on that? Prison. <laughs> you know, um, what did I win, Alex? Prison. I wanted to uh, <laughs> add to that because actually uh, I grew up in Trent, New Jersey, and uh, I went mm-hmm. to Trent High School, the school that Muhammad Kareem mentioned. And the apathy, the level of apathy that exists, not only in that school but in that city, is off the chain. It's really you, you have mm. to actually go to Trenton, uh, Trenton and enter Trenton High School to really get a feel for just how bad it is. And I say to people all the time, you know, the prison industrial complex is real. And to pardon my French, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline really is the, the bastard stepchild of the prison industrial complex. Once people decided that they could make, a money, make money off the incarceration of individuals, the school-to-prison pipeline was born. As long as there is a dollar to be made off of imprisoning people, as we saw in Pennsylvania where the judge got 28 years for the Cash for Kids program, and he was mm-hmm. uh, there were like 4,000 uh, convictions that were thrown out because of this program. Once there is a dollar to be made off the incarceration of children, the school-to-prison pipeline, it, it, it's real and it, was, it's, it exists. And not only is it, does it real and it exists, but it's being enforced like you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you that's know, that 100% has a lot to do with the, the privatization of prisons as well. Um, like you said, there's a dollar to be made. Before prisons were privatized and before this ridiculous war on drugs, we had less crime and we had less people in prison. Um, we had um, far less nonviolent offenders in prison and far less um, nonviolent repeat offenders. Um, I think one of the situations, now I can't relate to what you guys are saying about your high school experiences because I attended a very um, ethnically diverse, multi-culty high school in North Miami. I went to North Miami Beach Senior High. We had different ethnic groups. And, you know, um, South Florida has tons of immigrant groups anyway. Um, School was right across the street from a mall, literally right across the street from a shopping mall. (laughs) And, um, you know, my first couple years, seniors and juniors could go out for lunch, and there was a student parking lot, and they had nice cars, et cetera, et cetera. I was in AP and honors classes, so I never had that experience of walking into a school that felt like a prison. I never had the experience of walking through metal detectors or having bars on the windows of my school. Um, but, you know, again, because it was a, a, a multicultural environment, it was co- it was painfully obvious to see that black students were singled out for disproportionately harsh punishment. Mm-hmm. I want to give you guys some uh, numbers and talk about a little bit some of these studies that have come out. Um, in 2011, a study of Texas public schools found 87% of suspended students were not required to be punished under state code, meaning their expulsions or their I'm sorry, exclusions from school were discretionary and that black and Latino children were more likely than whites to receive harsh punishments for similar infractions. Statistics for 2009-2010 school year from the Department of Education show that black students nationwide, especially boys, are far more likely to be suspended than white students. When students are out of school, 
people say, I mean, well, mostly activists and people who are uh, against school to prison pipeline say that they're more likely to come into contact with juvenile justice system or be arrested. In an analysis of 2012 data from Chicago Public Schools, black students made up 76% of around 4,300 total school-based arrests, despite constituting about 42% of the student population, with 84% of those arrests for misdemeanors. So that's definitely a target in, mm-hmm. in these uh in this. this, this isn't an accident. That's, that's one of the things I can. When the when numbers start to come out like this, and can see this pattern nationwide. Texas, I can give you California. In fact, I will give you some particular LA stats a little bit later. Um, you, you talked about New Jersey. I mean, this is something that's taking place nationwide. So we know mm-hmm. this is definitely targeted. You know. So well, that's I don't know. It, I don't know when you say okay, targeted. You mean like? Do you mean this is something intention? You you think this is something that's being. Uh, intentionally done because i'm not sure if i yes i do i well see i i don't i don't think it's so much as being intentionally done as it's just kind of a structural thing it's based on like the reason that um black kids are in particular are being uh suspended at such higher rates i think it has a lot to do with just prejudice and bias that um, I, I agree with teachers that. Teachers and administrators I agree, have. I agree, Muhammad, but I, I, agree I, have, with that. I have to agree, but I have uh, to me, also say that when you look at the, the numbers, when you look at that black students are three and a half times more likely to be suspended than whites, and then that 68% of, of inmates don't have a high school diploma, these kids are really being funneled through right. the prison system in order for these private companies and these private businesses to make money. There is a huge dollar amount, dollar sign on these inner city kids to be made by having them go through the prison system. I, I hear a lot of people talking about all oh, these blacks are in prison, Latinos in prison. There are a lot of people who that's exactly where they want these kids. They want mm-hmm. these kids in trouble there. I mean, you, that was a case. Oh, no, no Florida, I agree with you with that. A kindergarten child was arrested and booked with a felony because she had a tantrum. So it's. I think it's a very focused thing as far as inner city kids, black kids, Latino kids. I think that they are definitely targeted, but versus do, rather than being I, I, the I case wanna, of, I do want to. I do want to talk sorry. about what. Uh, I'm sorry. I do want to address Muhammad on a certain point. I do agree that there is something that's definitely structural. Um, I do believe that there is an inherent fear of black males, hence why they get suspended for doing something minor. Um, so I do agree with that, but. When I say intentional, I'm talking about the fact that there are policies that are put in place, and these zero tolerance policies were put in place. These are not just they're not they don't blatantly say target black male students in your classroom. They just rely on those uh, on your fear of black males to do that. But fact of the matter is, these policies are put in place to make it easier for people to push their racism or push their discriminatory practices. That's what I'm saying. That when I say it's purposely done, we're talking about. I mean, I wish I could find this particular article that I was reading earlier when I was uh, getting ready for the show. I can't seem to find the article right now, but it talked about how there was a school where they were finding out that they, there were hired uh, private companies coming in to do the, the police work to, at, at a high school, and mm-hmm. a private company, uh, a corrections company that actually owns a prison. And I wish, if I pull that article, I'll post that link in the chat room. So, this, so when I say it's intentional, I'm talking about policies that have been put in place in recent years to increase the amount of suspensions, decrease the amount of expulsions, and which in turn increases the amount of dropout, uh, dropouts. 
And the thing, like I said, dropouts end up in prison. And the other thing is to keep in mind, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world and the highest okay. recidivism rate. Recidivism meaning that people come out of prison and they end up right back in because there are no resources mm-hmm. to help them. There's no rehabilitation in the system. I have another caller on the line. Uh, Piston Pilot, your line is open. I'm known as the one angry Jew, and i got a couple of questions. In these schools that you've it's noticed okay. where they're mm-hmm. – I have no doubt what you're telling me is true. I know it's true. It's done on purpose. But in these schools that you've seen where uh, kids are uh, – they, they have all the zero tolerance, tolerance crap, who are the administrators? Are these white administrators or are these black people? Who are they? I'm glad you say. I'm glad you pointed that out. And the fact of the matter is, in schools, and I, in fact, let me pull up some stuff about LA because I have. Uh, I'm from LA, so I'll easy to get some information on on LA. But in, even in schools, for example, Washington Preparatory High School in uh, South Los Angeles, the majority of the staff is black, and still the suspension rates are high for black male students. Um, in fact, uh, Ottawa so how do you, how do you explain that? What, what's going thing. on there? It's, it's structural. That's what structural racism is. It doesn't. It yeah, doesn't but where's mean, it coming from? It doesn't. It doesn't matter who is what color the people are in the school system. There's a system in place. Actually, you have actually, a system, I, I I think I understand the point where he's heading with this, and I actually think it mm-hmm. does matter. Um, when you talk about institutionalized racism, it is not just something that the man, the white government, or the white school system is doing. It is also something that your black counterparts have been taught to do and taught is appropriate and normal. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like I said, I went to a very diverse multicultural school, but if I had an issue and I went to the office, I dreaded having to talk with, to speak with a black administrator because they never took the, the issues of black students seriously. If I went to my white assistant principal, he would take me seriously. He let me make a phone call. Just what's that, what's that coming from? What's that about? I, had, I, had, I had a migraine once, okay, serious Brain migraine. Watch. I used to get them all the time from a, <clears throat> a head injury I had as a kid. And I went in there, and I spoke to a lady at the front desk, and she's following her nails and chatting with her girlfriend and wouldn't let me use the phone. And I sat in the office for an hour before the assistant principal came, saw me crying, and let me call my mother. And this is just one of the many instances. Let me, let me, I'm sorry, let me talk, please, uh, for a second. I, when I say it doesn't matter who the people are in the office, it, uh, what I'm saying is these are things that are perpetuated regardless of any of the numbers that, their numbers that back this up. Regardless of who is in the administrative offices, black, white, whatever, fact of the matter is black students are disproportionately suspended. So for ex- I, I'll give the example of Washington Prep High School in South L.A. where it's predominantly black faculty, and black and Latino students are almost equal in number, yet black students account for 62% of the suspended. Um, and it does, at Venice High School on the west side, black students represent only 9.5% of the population, and that's been at 25%, and they represent 25% of those suspended. So, and that's at a school where the staff is predominantly non black. So, I'm, what I'm saying is that at school, even in places where uh, you have black staff, and, and I agree that there is, there, that there is uh, inherent, we, the thing about racism is that it doesn't, you can still, hold racist ideology and implement those things if you're in a position of power as a person of color, right? Well, so I think that the staff, they're only, the staff is only, they, they are, the, the policies that the staff are implementing are being dictated to them. 
They're only they're they're a part. They're just a cog in the wheel. They're not the ones implementing the process. They're the ones formatting the uh, forwarding the process. It starts at the top. When you look at the money that's being made by these corporations and companies that are privatizing prisons and the prison system, and you look at the dollar signs, you follow the money. You see exactly. where these policies start to come from. Shit runs down. You start to see where why these schools are implementing the type of uh, of policies and these no tolerance policies. And you do this and you're suspended. And you do this, you're expelled. You know, you start to see when you look up, you start to see where this stuff comes down from. It starts almost at the federal level and works its way down to the individual schools and individual neighborhoods across the country. And that's simply because there is a lot of money to be made exactly. off of the incarceration of I want to I have another caller. Children. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, have go ahead. The, I have another caller on the line. And I, just really quickly, I want to kind of repeat. Some of you guys weren't listening to the show when I first announced some of the ground rules, and I'm going to repeat them. Um, and I want to make sure I get to this other caller. Um, Please keep your comments to the point and as succinct as possible. And like I said before, I'm not timing anyone, but I just want to make sure everyone gets a chance to participate in this discussion and that everyone feels comfortable participating. That's very important to me because for this show, I want everyone to feel included. And I don't want people to feel intimidated to participate because everyone is trying to out-talk each other or talk too long or some people, you know, I just want everyone, regardless of even their knowledge, be able to feel like, hey, I can participate. So, and also, it's okay to disagree, and so far, everything's been friendly, no personal attacks. Uh, but if anybody wants to jump in on the line, I want to make sure they say no. It is okay to disagree, but we keep all personal attacks out of this conversation. We only talk about perspectives, ideas, and we're able to challenge those. Just wanted to throw that out there before I went to my next caller. Um, caller, you have a screwed up number, 111-111-111. I'm guessing you're on Skype. What's your name? How you doing? My name is Michael from the RFX Show. How you doing? Good show you guys have Well, first of all, I would like to definitely stay on topic, make three comments, and I want to ask you, the educators and you guys, a question. Well, first of all, the city I come from, Baltimore, Maryland, one of you other calls were talking about whether or not is this planned for our kids to fail. Well, in my city, they are expanding the state of Maryland is expanding construction to build a facility, like a jail facility, for our young people. Yeah. So if the state of Maryland is doing that, what is that saying? When legislators get into office, they forecast. That's, they're forecasting a failure when they're expanding, getting more dollars, and guess what? They're not building more schools. So when someone acts... The question is it a is it is it is it is it set up? They're already planning. Look what they're doing. They're remodeling, and that, that money can go somewhere else. So they're okay. forecasting a failure. Okay, number two, dream, I want to say if they build it, they will come. <laughs> say it again. Oh, okay, well, okay. I, said I guess you didn't answer the, the question. If they build exactly. it, exactly. So, uh, so I guess, so I guess that answered the question about whether it's planned or not. And thank you. I guess you answered the question. Now, I want to say another point. When we talk about suspensions from school, they're suspending the kids over petty stuff, yeah. okay, not talking in class. When, they, when you suspend them, they go and sell drugs. Now, another point, why don't we, instead of suspend them, make education? Well, I'm well, sorry. Well, wait wait a second, Mike. Mike, wait a minute. You can't make a statement like that. You can't say all kids want suspended, go out and sell drugs. 
Hold 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 on hold on Mo. Listen listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I I'm heard saying. What you said. When you said when the parent works and you suspend him because he's not talking in class, he's not paying attention, he's not doing nothing really illegal, and you suspend him for ten days, and he and 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 they may be playing hooky. I'm letting you know where they're going to go at. They're on the street. I don't know where you come from. You still well, I don't think he's quoting a statistic. Wait, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't Excuse think me. he's trying to quote a statistic saying that all youth are uh, when they get suspended that they go out and sell drugs. I don't think that's a statement he's making. But I do. I I, I do think, at least from what I'm gathering, that uh, these students who get suspended, especially for these long-term suspensions such as ten days, which is extremely long to be out of school. What are they doing for those ten days? That's two weeks out of school. Exactly. And a lot of times, I don't know in uh, in South yeah, LA. Hold on. I guess like I can speak mostly from my experience working in South LA, working in Watts. Um, a lot of times, work in, and also having worked in particular with youth who have a, a criminal history or, or are a part of the criminal justice system, um, a lot of the times you talk to the youth when they tell you, well, how did you end up in this in, in this continuation school, end up in the criminal justice system? And a lot of times they'll tell you, I, I kept getting suspended, and I said, that's it, I'm going to just stop going to school. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what they did. They just stopped going. And so they end up running the streets. Their parents, oh, hold on, hold on. I'm not done. I'll let you jump uh, asking the question. A lot of times what happens, especially if you're in a low-income community, if your parents are working, they're working two, three jobs under the table, or whatever's going, or they're not educated themselves, or whatever the case is, and or you're around a lot of people in your community who are drug dealers, who are people who run the streets, or whatever it is that they do, they're not educated, they're not being productive in the community. A lot of times, youth are running the streets, and that's what that's who they that's what they participate in. I'm not saying that there's uh, that that's 100 percent fact. I know plenty of uh, youth who dropped out of high school and didn't end up doing it, end up getting incarcerated at all. But that doesn't negate the fact that that is a high that, that is that youth who are suspended and are in low-income com- communities are at high risk for ending up in prison and doing things uh, such as selling drugs. So I don't think we can dismiss his point because he's not giving us a 100%. I mean, he's not giving us statistical facts on just pure numbers. I don't think that's the point he was even making. Uh, who was somebody was asking me a question in response to that? I, I, I wasn't asking was. a question. I was. I wasn't asking a question. I was just making the comment that. You know, besides, you know, um, our, which is our main topic, the school to prison pipeline and children running the streets, things like that, you have to consider, as you said, um, 10 days, that's two weeks from school. And if that happens multiple times in the year, how hard it might be for a child who might actually want to graduate to catch up. And because it is so right. hard, the lure of, of you know, um, doing something illegal and getting quick money is a very strong one. Or, you know, in that 10 days, that girl could, could, could you know, conceive and, and get pregnant in that time. And as far as you're talking about before about recidivism, when you're talking about someone who's a high school dropout and then they're in prison, then they come out of prison. And, and their prison, if they went to I mean, a, a school like you guys went to, is a lot like their school with the bars and the metal detectors and they're used to that structure. Then they come out of prison, no education, no job, and then they go right back to the behaviors that landed them in prison in the first place, and they become completely institutionalized, and that prison becomes home. Again, mm-hmm. to speak to the, I think he called himself the Wandering Jew. It, it's a, I think he's, in, I think you sound like an intelligent person. It's a the one, the one angry Jew. No, I know it's a an angry Jew. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. Um, um, it, it's a business. You know, the businesses dictate to the legislators. The legislators dictate to the states. The states dictate to the school officials, and the school officials dictate to the faculty. It runs down. Yeah, but and where is this predominantly? Is this predominantly in the uh, in the cities? 
Or is it it's starting in, to creep it, out in, the in, place, in inner cities, places where they know that they can get away with it, places where yeah. they know there isn't much resistance, places where they know there's apathy, that there are young kids struggling, that there are young people out there, people trying to make it, that there are single-parent homes, that parents trying to do the best they can to raise their children. They take advantage of the structure and of the system, and you end up, as uh, Vita and Emily said, children end up with children who are being suspended for virtually nothing, children who are, are end up on the streets. And I hate to use a Christian term, but an idle mind really is the devil's workshop. And you got kids sitting home 10 days, 20 days, you know, three weeks at a time. You know, they're in the inner city. I grew up in the city. Unless you're going to stay in the house, there's going to be some shit out there for you when you go outside. Can you learn anything in these schools? Are you able to learn anything in these schools? It's very difficult, I must tell you. You are able it, it to. It is very difficult. difficult. Very so difficult. here's my, here's my question. Point. Here's my question. What's your question? If, if you're, if it's uh, questionable that you can even learn anything in these schools, it sounds like you're more in danger in the schools than out. Well, it's, let's put it like this: this isn't something that. If we just get rid of suspensions, then the the problem will be solved necessarily. The fact of the matter is we do have some education problems. And part of the problem is that we invest more in our – in California, for example, they invest more in prisons than they do in education. So uh, suspensions may not necessarily solve the problem of of incarceration. And you're right. A lot of these schools are already effed up. And and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's – that there's no hope. Because, I, I mean, I came out of a, a low-income inner-city school in south-central L.A., and I, I, I'm, I, I do pretty well for someone my age. And I, I don't think that I can say that my school helped me or supported me. There were, I happened there were some good programs. I was one of the – my school held 3,000 students, over 3,000 students. It's built for, it was built for 1,100 students, okay? Um but for one thing, there was, a school, there was a huge school shortage out here in South L.A. at one point. And so you have 3,000, actually, I was going to say 3,300 students who were at my high school, built for 1,100 students. There are not enough programs for all the students. I was privileged, and I always, used, I always say I have to recognize my own privilege. The reason why I'm able to be successful in the way that I have been is because of the programs that I had access to. Everyone did not have access to those programs because there aren't enough programs, and they don't have the capacity to put all three. 3,300 students in programs. On top of that, I matter. My, I come from an educated family. My father was educated, and he got me into those programs. What about families who aren't educated, who don't know how to get their kids into these programs, rely on the schools because they don't know any else. They don't know any better. So uh, it's not an isol- It's not to say that suspension rates are the only problem, but I don't necessarily think that um, we can dismiss uh, education overall because of that. But I don't expect this to happen in my school where my son's about to go, sixth grade. I'm sorry, well, six years old, going into first grade. Do you have grade. black students at your kids? I mean, yes. in, in the, yeah, they're black not, kids but, there. But they're pre- predominantly white, mainly. Okay, uh, now, uh, now I'm going to ask you, and this is the elementary school, it might be a little bit different. And if you look at even the high school in your area, that might be predominantly white with a few black students or, or you know, a small percentage of black students. In schools where there are a low percentage of black students, they're still disproportionately suspended. So that's the thing. This isn't even a class issue. This isn't. I mean, this, isn't this isn't exclusively a class issue. It's, it's, it includes uh, communities where people are well off. 
it's not may not well off in a sense like they're rich, but you know they're middle class families that go through that are in these schools, and yet black students who maybe make up nine percent of the population make up twenty five percent of the suspension. Look, I have no I doubt the, that this all starts the, in the inner city schools, but it's spreading out into the suburbs. The people who live in the suburbs and think that it's not coming out, out there. This thinking, this line of thinking, this uh, uh, no thinking? zero tolerance crap. Well, let's, let's take the zero tolerance. Oh, okay. I'm it's a take, policy. But, it's, it's, but, but, but it's a school district policy. Kids. It's a school or state policy. So it's gonna, it's gonna, it's not, it's not a thinking that's leaking over. Exactly. This is a policy. How it's implemented at your school mm. might be different. But that's right. the well, policy. You know, is that's that's, that's my point. Right, yeah, that's that, my point. It's, it's, it's statewide. It's not. It, it might be implemented differently, but it's being funneled down. I have no doubt that it comes from the feds on down. But I'm thinking while you're talking about this that these kids need an education outside of the education. The first education that they need is to know when to stop talking when they're well, dealing with I these address, administrators. They need well, to shut I address their mouths. That, please? Well, can I address that, please? Uh, well, I want to clarify what he means before you address it. Let's clarify what he means. Cause, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, like, uh, never you have the never, right to remain silent. Yeah, never talk to a cop. And that includes now never talk to the principal. I'm instructing my six-year-old. Now this is in a in a suburban school, three miles outside of the city. But I'm instructing my six-year-old that if he's brought into the office, I don't care what the reason is, he is not to open his mouth until he calls me and he brings me in there. He is not to talk to the principal. He is not to talk to a cop. He is not to say anything to anyone, no one. Now, imagine if you taught the inner city kids that and they followed through on it. Because I'm sure that they spend half their time, uh, these administrators, cowing the kids or uh, browbeating the kids into admitting all sorts of stuff. And when I hear that they're suspending kids for rolling their eyes, that's nuts. Yes. And let, so let me, let's can I add one about, more thing to mention? Oh, go ahead, no, go ahead, Vita. Go ahead, Vita. Well, if you're going to call, well, you're gonna call these schools gateways, if you're going to call these schools gateways to prisons, then everybody better learn to shut their mouths when they're talking to these people. Because well, if you talk to them, they're going to nail you. Well, so this is the problem, though. The this is the problem, though. So okay. Some of these, there were, there's actually a story of, of a student who was suspended because he wouldn't say anything. So what about situations like that? How long did they I mean, suspend him? How long did they was, suspend him? Uh, I don't remember. I have a day? I have a ton of arguments. But either way, it's irrelevant. I mean, I don't care if it was suspended for half a day. I, I, think, I think that's irrelevant. The point well, I'm saying is that being is better violent, than a week, if you're, if you're, if you're, if I'm saying that just be, when you're talking about a racist construct and you're talking about racism, I, I hear you, and I agree that, Definitely, my, one thing my father taught me is don't tell the police nothing. I don't, if they don't got a warrant, they can't come in the house. Don't even if they ask. I, I know I know a lot of rules, and I was raised a lot of those things. But how many but kids are walked out of school in handcuffs? But that Did doesn't that necessarily mean how that many the kids walk out in handcuffs. What? Well, the, yeah, they don't how have many much, kids are walked out of school in handcuffs? Depending upon what they've been brought to the office for, they might walk out in handcuffs anyway. Right. I'm saying just them not talking alone. If just if you're dealing with a system that's racist, and you talk about a school system that's racist, just not talking is not necessarily 
an answer. Is this because it's not this? A lot of these things rights get violated every single day. It may not be. It may not they be the answer. Or not. But it sounds like whether, it's a better answer. Whether they speak or not, I'm not, and I'm not even 100 percent disagreeing with you. I'm just pointing. I'm just throw some other things out there that you know when you're black, it's a little bit different because you are. The, the, the rules don't apply to you in the same way. They might say, you know what, I want to call your mother because you're not talking. Okay, you're a white student. Yeah. You, okay, call mom. They'll yeah, call I, mom. I don't really Fine. see how Whatever. not if you're talking a black is going to do anything. They might, just send you, they might just walk you out in handcuffs like you talked about. And you, your parents might not even hear you. I remember growing up in school and parents didn't find out about their kids even getting uh, uh, escorted off the campus until way later, later in the day. Now, how awful is that? And if you were a parent that didn't speak English, you really had a hard time. So I'm saying that just because I, I hear what you're saying, yes, if, if rules apply equally and, and were apply equitably, then I think that would be a definitely be one of the solutions. I just don't think it's uh, or sometimes they, I just, or sometimes they send our kids home with, or they suspend them and send them our kids home without a parent coming to pick them up or without contact with their parent. And when they go suspended from school, going back home. Well, it's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. They're really supposed to be in school, and they wind up getting something from home. So when you tell the child he has to leave from school, if a prime doesn't pick him up, when a prime can come pick him up for the suspension, you can talk about what's going on. But I want to get back to something real quick. Why well, these kids are not acting up in school is because the education is boring. President Obama said our kids are boring, and I totally agree with them. It go, and when I say that, but, I'm saying when you listen, listen, when you have a that's child not the issue, in your though. presence, no, because that. Goes but that, what with, we're saying is they might not even the, be quote unquote acting up. They're doing shit. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cuss, but <laughs> they're doing that. The, I know. I no, no, um, no, 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 wait, 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 no. Wait, 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 I suggest okay, hold, hold that on. you watch um, it. I'm saying okay. that, okay, I'm going to have to, okay, I'm, seriously, I'm going to start muting people. If I'm in the middle of talking, please stop oh, show, like, interrupting me. Um, I made me completely lose my point. <laughs> oh, I was saying that, you know, if, if the students were being suspended for violent acts, which is the, the problem is that that's not the case, or, or uh, strong criminal activity, like drug dealing or something like that, that's, that would be different. That's not the majority of the suspensions, though. In fact, a lot of the kids who are extremely violent are, are very, those are very rare instances, or uh, those certain kind of those are rare instances, because a lot of those kids don't go to school in the first place. So that's not necessarily the, the, the numbers that we're seeing at this rate isn't because students are just acting up. Now, I do agree that there is an issue that students are bored in school, especially I think a lot of black kids, like I said earlier, you know, we go to school and we're to BS. And then uh, we're, we're, you know, white white men is are the are the forefathers, and they're great. We're gonna forget the fact that they, that they owned and raped slaves, but you know they're still great people anyway. That's something that we're taught in school. So yeah, I agree that the system in education has to change, but that's not necessarily the reason why these kids are being suspended. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I just wanted to make well, one quick point, um, just really really quickly. Um, you know you. Inner city schools have been brought up, and while that is valid, I believe that a more diverse um, school is a better um, example of black students being disproportionately um, disciplined and suspended and expelled simply because if it's an inner city school that's majority black, like 90% plus black, then of course they're suspended more. Who else is there? But that said, um, I feel that with black students, 
among white and black administrators, there is the 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 idea that they're going to fail anyway. They will end up mm-hmm. they will end up selling drugs. They will fail anyway. And I believe the reason why black administrators are are harshest to punish is because they want these bad seeds or, or you know, the kids have been conditioned to see bad seeds out of the way before they cause embarrassment, whereas white administrators really, especially in when, the kind of school I went to, um, the multicultural school in a middle-class environment, they do not want you to play that race card. So maybe they'll be a little bit nicer than that black administrator will be. Um, but that said, um, when, you, when you're talking about um, – the the school to prison pipeline you have to understand because black students are seen as the ones that are going to fail regardless and privatized prisons need more bodies for that labor mm-hmm. and historically black people have proven themselves physically equipped to perform that labor why not it all it all goes hand in hand um their ancestors were taking cottons in the field surely they can put aglets on shoelaces in prison uh, I just want to say really quickly, as long as the prison Keep industrial right. cop exists, the school to pipeline uh, will exist. There's just no way around it. We need to get the private money out of the public schools. We need to stop rewarding companies that are have a, a stake in our children going to jail. We need to pressure legislators to put money into education. There is no money. Vita mentioned something earlier about there were no, there aren't enough programs. And there aren't. In Trenton Central High School, Trenton is a huge city. It's the capital city of New Jersey. There is one high school, one, over five, six, seven thousand children go to that school. And all from different parts of the, uh, the city. Now, I was I grew up in the Wilbur section of Trenton, uh, Trenton, and we had beef with cats from Northside. And you know what happened? As soon as I got to that bridge, I had to fight because I mean I'm I'm fighting kids on the way home from school because we got beef on different other, different sides of the city. Put more, build more schools and stop building prisons. Stop investing in prisons and stop allowing private money to invade public schools and we can get rid of this type of stuff. But as long as the prison industrial complex exists, the school to pipeline will exist. Yeah. And as long uh, as the right, pipeline guys. exists, I angry suggest. Are you grappling ignorance by any chance? I don't even know I'm sorry? who that is. I'm is that sorry. a good thing or a bad he, thing? It's a great thing. He's one of my favorite YouTubers, and he happens to be a teacher. Um, but he, he, um, he does his videos with, like, a hood, and his face is all shielded out. But you sound exactly like him. No, that's not, that, that's not me. Look, my, I want to make one last point. All right, point, guys. And I'm, I'm going to put this link in the chat. Uh, I have to. I suggest you, you to, watch it. You have it. to wrap up. <laughs> I'm sorry, finish your point. I'm sorry. You want to let me Go finish? Ahead. Yeah. I suggest you watch that video. Oh. And I suggest if you've got kids or you know kids, you sit them down and you make them watch that video. It's entitled, Don't Talk to the Police. And if you're going to say that there's an educational system funneling kids from the schools right into the prisons, which I don't disagree with, then I say suspend the kid for half a day or one day for not talking rather than have him open his mouth and admit to something that maybe he didn't do that gets him in 10 days or gets him let out in handcuffs. And if you let the administrators know ahead of time that your kid doesn't have permission to talk, what are they going to say? Okay, uh, thank you everyone for thank you calling in. Uh, I'm sorry, we have to go, and I we can't do overtime tonight because I have a morning show that I do at 4:30 in the morning, and uh, out here in LA, so no third hour. So 
sorry. Um, <laughs> again, I want to thank everyone, uh, Emelyn Musso, Muhammad Kareem, and Doc Sin for being my special guest panelists. I really appreciate you guys, and I appreciate um, all of the help that you guys have given in participating in this discussion. Um, I wanted to uh, make sure and thank uh, Citizens for a Sustainable Future for their update, and special thanks to Kim for creating this network and giving us this opportunity. A special shout-out to Black, to our Freethinker family, Black Skeptics LA, and Grand Unified Theory, and of course, many thanks to all of our listeners for calling in, chatting in the chat room, and tuning in. Today you heard music by Trauma Brahma and Exclusive, Elusive Day Exclusive, and tomorrow night here on Black Freethinkers Radio, please join Alfred and Carl as they discuss respectability politics and its impact on American politics and society. Check out www.blogtalkradio.com Black Free Thinkers for upcoming shows and on-demand episodes. I'm your host, Star. Add me on Facebook, on Twitter. I'm under the name Vita Star with two R's. On Blast will be back August 22nd, and I hope you join us again. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Vita. Thank you.